Welcome to season two of the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Casey McCauley. We have a new series of fortnightly conversations with leading lights from the world of internal communication, engagement and leadership. And we kick off with the doctor of IC himself, Kevin Ruck, the man who literally wrote the textbook. Dr. Kevin Ruck is the co-founder of the PR Academy and he leads the CIPR Internal Communication Diploma. He's a man with many letters after his name. I ask him to dig into engagement and what drives it, what's wrong with line and middle manager communication, how to measure IC, and the importance of having an informed employee voice inside organisations. Now, listeners, this is a thorough and a detailed examination of our subject, and I really hope I don't lose you, but to help, we've put all the resources and books that we mention in the show notes. My first question to Kevin is about the IC pros he meets through his training programs. What consistently delights him about us as professionals? And if he's willing to share it, what consistently maybe frustrates him too? I would say that internal communication people are just such nice people to work with. <laughs> I know that sounds a little bit sort of naff, I suppose, in some respects, but that's what I find. You know, when I talk to the students on our internal communication diploma courses, they're a real delight to teach and talk to. The thing that they do for me, which I think is perhaps underrated sometimes, is they're just constantly determined to do a really good job, often in really difficult circumstances, multiple demands on their time, lots of things getting thrown at them, and they're relatively thick-skinned and manage to juggle so many things all the time. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more to good internal communication practices, which I'm sure we'll get into, but I think that stands out to me. They also care deeply about people, you know, their fellow students in our classes, but fundamentally, they care about employees. And that's so important, I think. Yes. It's interesting, isn't it? I always think that we act, it's not in the job title, it's not in the job description, but we act sometimes as the conscience of our organisations. We're the ones that have to build that bridge between maybe what the organisation feels it needs to do and the people on the ground at the front line where it's going to be felt most. And we're the ones raising a flag and saying, hang on a minute, this doesn't make sense or it's not the right thing to do or have you thought twice about this and maybe you should think again. So, yeah, I think that's an interesting place to be. And then that leads me on to the frustration. Right. <laughs> because... Sometimes internal communication people are just too nice. This I see sometimes with just responding without really challenging back or being assertive. So I think that as an industry, as people in internal communication, we could be a little bit more assertive. And I don't mean aggressive. I just mean challenging back, sometimes saying no. There was an example recently I had a student in a class. She said to me she'd come in and she was really quite stressed about it her director of operations had asked her to go about and install digital screens throughout the whole of the head office where she worked. And the rationale was just non-existent because I think this director had been somewhere and someone else had said, oh, this is what we do. And what made it worse was that the digital screens were just going to be set up to show the internet home page. And I said to her, what was the rationale? What was the purpose? There wasn't one. And I said, you know, it's going to cost quite a bit of money. How is it going to serve 
your employees in a way that's going to really help them to understand things? And she said, well, it really isn't, as far as I know. And I said, you know, if you look at the Gatehouse uh, State of the Sector survey, which talks about channels, it shows you that digital screens are one of the least effective channels going. She's, oh, does it? Oh, thanks for that. And she then w- was able to go back to that director and put a case together. But we're guilty sometimes of just accepting things that are thrown at us without really challenging back and saying, where do they fit in the plan? How is this really going to help us to achieve our objectives? I think that's really interesting because I know that there's a debate or certainly a discussion about how we can increase our credibility. You know, and this phrase about you sort of being at the top table and having a voice at the top table, not the top table is going to get very crowded with all the people <laughs> that need to have a voice around it. But being compliant and saying yes does not increase your credibility, does it? It might make you helpful in that short-term moment, but when I think about if I've got my MD hat on for a moment and I think about the people that advise me, they're the people that say, you're absolutely wrong about that, Katie. I think more highly of them in the long term for challenging me. I think you've got to pick your battles sometimes. <laughs> yes. and sometimes it's fine to just go away and design that poster. It's not really worth arguing necessarily, but it's just if you are constantly just saying yes to everything that gets thrown at you, then you just become the corporate postman or postwoman and you are seen in a much less, I think, credible light. And I think it comes back to confidence. Mm. It comes back to having training, qualifications and confidence in your ability to say, I am a professional, I do know what I'm doing. And in this circumstance, this request to go and install digital screens everywhere is actually not the best way to achieve our objectives. But I think also if you look at the HR profession, and I've watched HR evolve, you know, through the 1980s when I started work back to today, and they have become a lot more assertive and a lot more strategic and a lot more confident about saying what they do do and what they are prepared to outsource because they don't see it being of particular value to their career development or profession. So I think we could learn from other disciplines. And that's not to say, you know, other disciplines couldn't learn also from some of the things we do in internal comms, of course. But I think we could learn from marketing and perhaps HR and just become a more strategic in what Mm. we do, which then allows us to say sometimes, no, I'm not going to just do whatever gets thrown at me. And we'll come back, I think, in this podcast probably to talk about why it is that senior managers feel that they can just tell internal comms people to do the tactic when actually the internal comms person is a profession in the discussion. Um, yes. There's lots yes. of reasons behind that, but I mean, that's a far bigger discussion yes. probably. Yes, I'm sure we'll come back to that. For the moment, I am going to take you right back to the beginning, if I may. So British Telecom, at the time you were working there, so I believe we're going back to 1979 when you yep, first started. <laughs> Now, this was at that time a nationalised organisation. I would imagine it had tens of thousands of people working for it. And you, I noticed from researching this episode, you were there through a time of great change and transformation. And I'm wondering when you look back on that time, with all this sort of hindsight, I guess, what were the biggest lessons you learned around the communication? And indeed, if you're happy to talk about it, the management of change and transformation. Yeah, it is 1979. It's a long time ago now. And, you know, when I joined, it was British Telecommunications. It was part of the post office, I think. So it was a civil service department. It had more than 100,000 people. It was highly bureaucratic. 
uh, highly organized and disciplined, and we had things called TIs, telecommunications instructions. If you wanted to know anything about anything to do with telecommunications, you could go and in a library, find it written down, and you'd have a manual instruction to do just about anything. Wow. So it's highly bureaucratic. You know, if you wanted a telephone, great, it was black or black, you know, I mean, that was the choice. And it might take you four weeks, if you're lucky, to get one installed. I worked in customer service for a long time, and I was in customer service actually working for the district general manager at the time, dealing with complaints directed to the chairman's office at BT. This is a bit of an aside, but one of the best complaints I ever received <laughs> was from a gentleman who uh, complained that the new British Telecom logo, it was a new yellow logo and had lots of dots on it. And he was adamant that it had a hidden message to people in outer space. <gasps> and we had to take the dots out of the logo. So I remember that, it's brilliant. But anyway, during that period, <laughs> BT became privatised. So up to that point, internal communication was pretty non-existent. I do remember the union at the time, had a paper newsletter, if you want to call it that, full of cartoons about senior management that went around the whole floor. I actually met the guy who drew the cartoons later. He was a, a really frustrated cartoonist. He was brilliant, but ended up working in directories, a really boring job in PT. <laughs> anyway, so yes, there was virtually no internal communication, but when BT became privatised, not only was it a massive culture change within the organisation, and I'll talk about the way it was managed and the communication around that change. One of the biggest, I think, organisational changes, along with you know, others at the time in British Gas and Water and so on and so forth, but it was a real significantly big change, you know, for a company. And the way it was done really was quite ruthless. Really? I think it, it was all about bringing in new managers from the private sector. I recall the new district general manager was an American who came in at the time. And, you know, he was absolutely ruthless, focused on objectives, targets. And of course, you know, many people who'd been in the company for a very long time, sort of nearing retirement, you know, found it very, very difficult indeed to be part of the new approach. And BT was a very good company to work for, so it gave very good redundancy terms. And a lot of people did take those redundancies at that time. I mean, in terms of communication, I don't remember a lot, but we started to see the internal newsletter that came about at a local level. There was more management events. One of the first, I think, management events, we call it a town hall now, but then we went to a local cinema and there's about a thousand people were marched into a cinema and the district general manager shook the hand of every employee as he went into that cinema and then stood on stage and did the usual town hall stuff. I mean, this is going back to mid-1980s. So it was the start of that, I suppose, entertainment approach towards internal communication. But the whole premise of the internal communication was to persuade employees that privatisation was a good thing and all the new approaches were going to be beneficial. So it was a massive persuasion. And it did work alongside lots of ruthless management right. approaches. So right. I'm not saying that is the way to go about change management, but sometimes when you want to achieve a really radical change, then I think there are cases to be made for quite ruthless approaches to management, as long as employees are supported, yes. you know, if they no longer want to work in the organisation. I know that sounds like a really hard thing to say, but you know, later on in BT... I was part of another major transformation. A new chief executive came in to the BT's IT division. 20,000 employees worked just in IT development. Well, I think there were 4,000 
IT projects that existed at that point. And if you worked in IT in BT's research and development hub, which is in Marshalsham near Ipswich, you know, you almost had carte blanche to start your own pet IT project. Right. And this is why there were 4,000 of them. But the new CEO came in and said, look, every IT project has got to be strictly aligned to a business objective and signed off by a BT division so that it does connect to service or products or innovation. And he managed to change that from 4,000 projects down to 40, wow. you know, within the course of two years. But he did a lot of listening. He went around, I organised some of his events where he was talking to people, explaining his vision. So he had a very strong vision and he had a very clear purpose about why things needed to change. I'm talking about 2006 or seven here. So mm. we're fast forwarding to a completely different era. But the communication used for that was far more sophisticated and included a lot more listening than in the 1980s. Yes. So the change was done with people rather than to people, more as it were. So. Yes. Yes. yes, more so. Although I understand what you mean about the ruthlessness, because in some ways, there's no point in trying to pretend to employees that things are going to be absolutely fine when there are going to be tough times ahead. So it's better to absolutely be upfront about things are going to change around here and it isn't going to be for everyone. And what do we do about that and how do we help you, I guess? Yes. Change communication is a huge subject in its own right. And I think we've come a long way in understanding good practice for change communication. You have to be in at the beginning of the process, you know. Right. To paraphrase that Olympic champion, Linford Christie, mm -hmm. you've got to be in at the B of the bang. You've got to be there. You've got to be right with the off in terms of internal comms informing and advising senior managers. Because too often internal communication people are brought into the process just to brief out things. And by which time the things that are being briefed out you know, might not be quite right. This is where communication people can really add value to change management because being in at the beginning of the process, you know, you start to question some of the things that are being suggested. You know, I was in BT's IT division and I had to go to a board meeting and at the time, internal communication was on the end of the agenda, you know, and by the time you got to five o'clock, the agenda was running over by an hour. So, you know, half an hour slot at the end of the day gets bumped and you spend the whole day in a board meeting. But, you know, one of the things that I did at that time, I was studying for my MBA and I started to use some of the models and theories that I was learning from my MBA. And I would start to very occasionally put my hand up early in the meeting, not when it's my slot, and just point something out because from a communication perspective, and from learning business studies, you can join these two things together and make some really pertinent comments. <laughs> and I think I was only able to do that because people started to think, well, he's doing an MBA. I mean, I know that yeah, it sounds perhaps a little bit arrogant, but it gave me the credibility to be able to contribute to what was a business meeting, even though I was only present in that meeting wearing a communications hat. But, you know, of course, you know, you don't have to have an MBA or study business studies to be able to do that. But it just gave me the confidence at that point in my career to be able to make that contribution. Yes, it comes back to the point that we talk about a lot, I think, and we have on the last sort of season of this podcast, the importance of reading around the subject of increasing your business acumen so that you don't just think of yourself as a communicator, but you understand business as well and how the business is running. That makes absolute sense. Often when you say to someone, oh, he wrote the textbook, it's a kind of euphemism. 
<laughs> in this instance, is actually true. So your book, Exploring Internal Communication, one of the things that struck me about it is the Lever Brothers Journal. So this was published back in 1895, but it was written for and by employees. It's a strange place to start, I know, when we talk about the textbook, but I'd just like to talk about this a little bit because... When I read that, and I think you pointed it out in the book as well, it's almost like I see coming full circle. Is that true to a degree? The chapter you're referring to is actually uh, written with a good colleague of mine, Dr. Heather Yaxley. We actually spent some time rummaging through the archives at the Institute of Internal Communication. And it's actually Heather who found that Lever Brothers journal. And it was quite a find because it was a really old publication. And, you know, as far as we know, it's one of the oldest publication, internal newspaper examples, if you like, that we've come across so far. Unless there's anyone out there who knows of any others, we'd be really interested to know if there are other examples. But it was a joy to find because it was written by employees, women, actually, as it happens, for other employees. I just think that if that's how internal communication started, it actually didn't stay like that for very long, unfortunately. No. It became taken over by the management team. Yes. I believe there's another one from, again, female employees in America, mill workers. Yes. We'll put it in the show yeah. notes. But again, written for employees, by employees, it's very much their voice. I guess what happened was leaders saw the power of these things and realised these were great places to get their messages out. <laughs> and hijack the show slightly. Is that what happened, do you think? We weren't able to establish that, but I think it's a reasonable assumption to make. <laughs> what happened after that is we have to fast forward into sort of the 1950s, really, to find the birth of internal communication as we know it today. And this is connected with the establishment of the British Association of Industrial Editors, which now is the Institute of Internal Communication. But Industrial Editors was the name given to newspaper editors who came into organisations to establish in-house newspapers. Again, we see that it's a managed, controlled process whereby senior managers employ industrial editors, or editors to produce publications that by and large, I mean, we looked at quite a few from the 50s, 60s and 70s, by and large seem to represent a pretty one-sided perspective of what was going on inside the organisation. That's changing now. Yes. I think understandable why and how that happened in the 1940s onwards through to about the 1980s when I think things started to change again. We're now seeing the role change completely. And that's why we think it's coming back full circle because I think internal communication people are now beginning to develop plans and do internal communication in a way that is more employee-centred and employee-focused. So giving voice to employees, yes. as well as, of course, keeping them informed yes. about things they need to know. So that's kind of how we see it happening. Maybe internal social media has played a part in that, mm -hmm. but also I think there are other factors as well. So employees feeling that they should have much more of a say in what goes on inside their organisations, you know, and this is driven by perhaps external factors whereby we are seeing through social media, everyone has a say. Yes, absolutely. Hence why the subtitle of your book is Towards Informed Employee Voice and absolutely captures the characteristic now that we're trying to, as you say, not just broadcast to people corporate messages, but we're trying to engage them in a conversation and capture 
authentically how they're thinking and feeling about the organisation, their ideas and their sentiment. What's the characteristics, I guess, of an organisation that has informed employee voice? I get the concept, but I guess for listeners, it might be helpful to sort of understand exactly what's happening. What does it feel like inside those organisations that get it? You know, internal communication people spend most of their time, understandably, making sure that employees are informed in the right way about things that they expect to be informed about at the right time. And that's really the fundamentals of internal communication. However, I think if that's all that internal communication people do, if it's all that organisations do, if organisations do not give opportunities for employees to have a say about what's going on or to comment on the information they're getting or for that to be part of an ongoing discussion, then I think internal communication is open to the accusation of it being propaganda. And I think this has been something that's been levelled against practice. Back in the 1980s, particularly, there were some academics who stressed this point. So what does it feel like? Well, it's about the opportunities to have a say that goes on that's complemented by getting information at the right time. So what do I mean by opportunities to have a say? It's about giving employees the opportunities through a number of mechanisms. It's not just the annual employee engagement survey, which of course a lot of employees don't really trust anyway. So it's far more than the annual employee engagement survey. It's about ongoing discussions and that could be done through online chats with chief executives. It could be done with listening lunches, for want of a better word, where senior managers go along and talk to employees in their workplace in an informal way and where the focus is not on you know, senior managers speaking for ages, it's about them talking and listening. And the key point, it's got to be about authentic voice. So it's not about doing this as a sort of tokenistic exercise just because someone said it might be a good idea. When I was interviewing employees for my research, one notable lady said to me that there was this exercise where a senior manager was out and around talking to employees and ostensibly there to listen to what they had to say. But she said he was smiling, but not with his eyes. So literally, quite literally, within the blink of an eyelid, an employee can spot when someone is asking a question and not really interested in what they're saying. And that's the key point about it. So what would it feel like? It would feel like you work in an organisation where senior managers generally do understand the value of talking and listening. And not only do they do that personally themselves, mm. and they have other opportunities and processes in place throughout the organisation, both at line manager level, middle manager level, online, face-to-face. -face. It's a multiplicity of channels that are used. But the key point is that when employees do have something to say and they express it, it's treated seriously. Mm. And at some point, there's some sort of feedback made to what employees are saying. Now, this to me, you know, is a great challenge, but a fantastic opportunity for yes. internal communication people. Because, you know, if we could do slightly less sending out stuff and spend the time that we get focusing on helping employees to have a say and being involved in that process, it makes what we do so much more strategic and useful. I mean, one of the things I've often thought, and it was really the basis of my book, was that 
I wondered whether we'd get to the stage for a lot of organisations where their products and services could almost be replicated at the touch of a button. The actual value in the organisation was not with the fixed assets, as it were, or even the IP around the product or service. It was inside the minds of people. And then the question is, how much of the value are we getting out of that unique asset that walks out of the door every night. You hope it walks back in the next morning. You can't be sure. So how do you keep and retain and maximise that massively valuable asset? And so get, creeping into their minds, getting into their minds, asking them really interesting, open questions that extracts that value surely has to be a good thing. Now, that was the kind of manifesto, I guess, for internal communications that my book was about. I'm not sure... I see it happening enough and I don't know what you see, whether you're actually really seeing that happen at the moment or whether that might be slightly a figment of my overactive imagination. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's absolutely. And, you know, I completely agree with that whole thinking. You know, it's that cheesy statement that, you know, we used to see trotted out employees are our greatest asset. Generally, they are. How far have we got along that path? I mean, there is data from the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, so the professional body for HR in the UK, that suggests that satisfaction with opportunities to have a say and the way that voices are considered, satisfaction is increasing, but very slowly, very marginally, and it has been slowly increasing over the last sort of decade or so. But it's still at relatively low levels. Right. Yeah, so, you know, we are seeing things slowly, slowly move. And I think that's just because we're seeing senior managers who really get it, you know, and the Engage for Success movement has played a role here. And, you know, the CIPD itself obviously talks a lot about employee voice and the importance of it. So I think there is a slow, slow, slow movement. When I talk to students about it, what emerges is very patchy. Right. <laughs> very okay. patchy, not just within organisations. So within particular parts of organisations, one part might get this and really run with it, and another part won't even go anywhere near it. Yes. And that's usually down to the senior manager as an individual about whether or not they're prepared yes. to go down this path of being open to listening to what employers have to say. Absolutely. So interesting, and I think that's been my experience as well. Mm. When talking about engagement. And I'm going to say up front, it's not my favourite word. When we talk about loyal, motivated, dedicated employees who are putting in that discretionary effort, just because I just don't think we go down the pub at the end of the day and say, I felt very engaged today, unless we have had someone just propose to us. But you make the distinction between work engagement and organisational engagement. And I thought that was really helpful and really interesting. I'm guessing the differences speak for themselves, but I thought it might be interesting for you to just define the difference between work engagement and organisational engagement. And really importantly, how one influences the other and does one come first? <laughs> OK, no, it's a very good question. And I understand the sort of sentiments about the term engagement. Academic research is quite interesting on employee engagement. There's a lot of the academic work has been done by the HR community again. And the distinction between work and organisation engagement has actually been around for quite a long time. It was an academic called Sachs in the US or Canada, I think it is now, who wrote a paper on this back in 2006. But it's just that it's taken time to become understood or established in practice. But I do think it's really important for us in internal communication. So 
the argument is that as an individual, you are engaged on a number of levels, but fundamentally you can be engaged with the job that you do. So the work that you are doing on a day-to-day basis, and this extends to the local team around you, so the team you work in and the manager that you work to, that environment is very much down to you and your particular specialism or work that you do on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, you can be engaged, motivated, intellectually challenged in ways that are all related to that specific job. You can, at the same time, be engaged with the organisation that you work for. So this is much more about the purpose of the organisation, its objectives, the way it's going, where it stands, how it treats employees generally, not you or your team. In general, does it treat all employees well or not, in your view? Mm-hmm. And these are, you know, obviously they're connected, but they are distinctly different constructs, I think. So, And you can be very, very engaged with the organisation you work for and very disengaged with the job you're doing for various reasons and vice versa. So why is this important, firstly, for internal communication? And I think it is fundamental because in our day-to-day practice in internal communication, we are really communicating about the organisation. Yes. You know, we can't possibly, in a central internal communication team, communicate in a way that is relevant to an individual's specific job. That's the job of the line manager. So fundamentally, the internal communication work that we do is always, by the nature of it, going to have very limited impact on the way that an employee is engaged with the particular work that they do on a day-to-day basis around their job description and so on. But the information that we're providing, and if we give employees a voice, that is connected to employees feeling part of a bigger community that is the organisation itself. Yes. Now, if you ask me which makes a difference, there is evidence that organisational engagement is more strongly linked to what employees do to make the organisation successful or what they do in their own job than being engaged with their own work, if that makes sense. So I think they're both important. Right. It's not to say that being, you know, job or work engagement isn't important. Of course it is. The interaction between the two is something that's not really been researched or studied. So there are obviously going to be interactions between one and the other, you know, the two constructs. But I think for our purposes in internal communication, what we really just need to focus on is the way that internal communication can lead to the ways that employees are more engaged with their organisation. Yes. And that's important because if you're engaged with your organisation, the research shows that you're going to be much more motivated to meet your own objectives and help the organisation succeed. So it gives us a a business case. It's the business case. And I think, although the word engagement is a bit loaded and some people see it as a bit of a soft objective, engagement is a very solid commercial objective in itself. If you understand that engagement is linked to lots of positive outcomes for both the organisation and the employee. So, you know, if you engage with the organisation, the evidence is that the organisation can be more successful, it's going to have higher levels of customer service, but also employees can have higher levels of well-being. So this yes. plays into the whole well-being piece as well. Yes. So it really gives internal communication that a solid, concrete business case to say that if we get internal communication right, then we are going to feed into organisational engagement and that's going to lead to a whole raft of good commercial outcomes for the organisation. We sometimes get confused about linking what we do to commercial outcomes and separately to engagement. This is kind of concept, and there's even a debate in what we do. And we shouldn't be talking about internal comms being linked to engagement. It's all about internal comms being linked to business outcomes. 
Well, internal comms is linked to both. We shouldn't say forget engagement and just focus on business outcomes because if we forget engagement, then we're losing a link to business outcomes. We should have informed plans that stipulate what objectives our internal communication is going to lead to, you know, and that could include outcomes. We wouldn't necessarily use the word engagement, but we'd use outcomes which are all about what internal communications will lead employees to think, feel and do. Yes, perfect. And it's outcome-based, not output-based. So we're not yes. talking about measurement, which measures how many people read an, an email briefing or read an item on a, an intranet. It's yeah. outcomes of what happens as a result of people reading something or watching a video or listening to a podcast. What's the outcome from that? And yes. we should be setting those objectives, outcome-based objectives in our internal communication plans. Yes, absolutely. And that upfront thinking then helps us much more readily and easily demonstrate our value, basically. It makes, yep, makes perfect absolutely. sense. There can't be many doctors of internal communication, I'm assuming, <laughs> in the world. <laughs> I'm not, no, I, I think it's a small group. Small um, elite group. <laughs> I think there's a small number, I think, you know, no, not too many. Yeah, I'd probably count them on two hands, I guess. Your PhD thesis, I've got it here, over 83,000 words, 300 references, although you made the point that just to have 300 references means you have to read, what, twice as much as that yeah, to get the right thing, yeah. <laughs> So that doesn't really do it justice. The thesis was around understanding the relationship between employee voice and engagement, which is what we've been talking about. But you say that the association is more an emotional one than a rational or cognitive connection. When I read that, I thought, oh, is this where all our troubles lie? Because <laughs> all our value, even if we want to talk about outcomes, still feels a little bit nebulous and a bit intangible. We're all talking about an emotional connection to our work at the end of the day. Is that the problem? It's an interesting point, And it's one that's been picked out about this connection to emotional engagement that comes out of the research. The thesis does include employee voice. It also looks at a number of different dimensions. So senior manager communication, line manager communication, for example, and employee voice as three core aspects of practice, if you like. And what it found is that employee voice and senior management communication have the strongest associations with employee engagement. And I'll come on to the emotional thing in a second or two, but it's just to make the point that employee voice and senior manager communication is more strongly associated with employee engagement than line manager communication. Now, that's not to say that line manager communication is not important. Line manager communication in my research is also associated with employee engagement. It's just the strength of the association isn't as strong as senior manager communication and employee voice. So it's an important distinction and I think one that you know has quite profound implications for practice. But in terms of the different levels of engagement, I go further in the data and I look at the three dimensions, think, feel and do. So cognitive, emotional and behavioural engagement. And then I look at internal communication and see which aspect, also which dimension of engagement does internal comms have the most impact on. And you're right to pick out the fact that of all of those aspects, so senior manager communication, employee voice, line manager communication, if you look at the correlations with employee engagement, they're all most strongly associated with the emotional level of engagement, what employees feel about where they work. However, the point is, and I think we can sort of think about why that might be, but it's also important to stress that 
all those aspects of internal communication were also strongly associated with what employees think and what they do. So it's not to say that it's only going to result in what employees feel. It's just that the impact is strongest on what employees feel. Okay. It is still connected. So internal, this is good news, internal communications is correlated with what employees think and also with what they do. So there is a behavioural outcome with internal communication. So again, this is the business case. But it's just that the impact is most strongly associated with what they feel about the organisation. Now, when I asked employees about this in the interviews and the focus groups that I ran, they sort of talked about good internal communication. What they said consistently was, without any prompting, was when communication is done well, they felt more valued. And this was a consistent response in a number of interviews from employees in different organisations. So the research was done in five separate organisations. So it's not just idiosyncratic to one organisation. So it is about the way we feel, which absolutely makes sense and making me feel valued. I just want to pick up on one thing you said there, because you made the point that actually senior leader communication has a big impact on making me feel a certain way. That seems to slightly contradict a book that came out 30 years ago by Larkin and Larkin that said, forget about everything. The only thing that really matters is line manager communication. Now, I've always wondered about that book, that it might have been right back then. But now we live in a world where the hierarchy, not just in organisations, but in society at large, has flattened. There is less deference and we speak up, we want to speak up and we want to co-create the solution and share. And we want to voice, not just in terms of where we work, but, you know, in society at large. So does that partly explain why people want this access and they want to feel listened to by their leaders? do you think? I remember that book, <laughs> the Larkin and Larkin book. And, you know, I remember it spawned a whole cascade briefing process and I was guilty, hands up. You know, I produced many cascade team briefings you know, in my time at BT. But I think the book and the cascade team briefing approach is unfortunately based on a bit of a flawed assumption. Basically, you actually need to ask employees what they want from their line managers and what they want from their senior managers in terms of communication, which is what I did. Right. And you actually then find that it's very different to what Larkin and Larkin found back in, I think it was the 1990s. So I'm not sure whether it's because organisations have changed. I think it could be, you right. know, for sure. But I think it might always have been the case, actually. Right. Um, so it's very simple, really. If you ask employees, they just say, when my line manager does a team briefing, I want my line manager to talk primarily about what's going on in my team that week, that month, and team-related information. That's what they want their line manager to do. And I think that that makes sense. You know, if I say to them, well, what happens when a, a line manager presents a cascade team briefing with this corporate stuff about new vision or values or whatever has happened. And they were basically, well, I know my line manager knows as little as I do, you <laughs> yes. know, about, about what they're being asked to present, you know, and, and it puts line manager in a really invidious position. And no wonder they don't deliver it very well because they're not comfortable or knowledgeable about what they're being asked to present. I've saw some research recently where internal communication people think line managers are the biggest problem or challenge in successful internal communication practice. And I don't know why they say that, but I think it could be because there's this impression that line managers are not very good communicators, whatever we might mean by good communicator. 
I think they may think that they're not very good at standing up and doing PowerPoint presentations in a very persuasive way. But if you ask employees, they don't want their line manager to stand up and do a persuasive presentation with PowerPoint in their team meetings. Wow. You know, so why is that? Why would we ask them to do well, that? Of course. It does really make you think this. It does really <laughs> make you think. That really does. And also... Okay, so there's a little bit of a light bulb moment in my head just gone off. So are we actually asking line managers sometimes, are we abdicating responsibility? Are middle managers and senior managers abdicating responsibility and saying, no, I'm going to give you the debt, I'm going to give you the cascade materials off your trot, you really should be able to do the jazz hands on this. And we know that they weren't employed and promoted to be line managers because of the jazz hands. (laughs) They were very good at the task, and so hence they're managing the task. So now we really need to ask middle managers, senior managers, CEOs, senior leadership teams to step a little bit into the limelight. Yeah, Yeah, I think we do. And the evidence goes back to my research findings, which shows that if you increase satisfaction with senior manager communication, it's going to have a stronger impact on engagement than if you increase satisfaction with line manager communication. So employees say that if there's something important going on about the organisation, whether it be an update on progress, whether it be some changes that have foreseen, whatever the bigger sort of corporate story might be that's going on, they want senior managers to talk to them about that, not their line manager. Mm-hmm. You know, And it's understandable because they want to be able to look the senior manager in the eye and say, can I trust this person in terms of what they're telling me? And the other myth that's out there is, you know, comes up sometimes is that employees don't really want to know about this big corporate stuff. They just want to come in and do their job nine to five and go home and, and so on and so forth. Well, the employees I interviewed, they may have been an exception, but all of them said they were very interested, really interested. And when I asked them in a survey, 2,066 employees surveyed as well, interest in knowing what's going on at the bigger corporate, they wouldn't call it a corporate level, but a bigger planning mm-hmm. level about the organisation was really high. It's the highest topic rated in my survey. So this is a myth we need to bust. And if we need to keep employees informed about what's going on at that level, then we need to ensure that senior managers are out and about visible and doing that explanation. And this is another thing that comes up. It's not about senior managers being, again, we're expecting a lot from senior managers sometimes. And one director I used to work for says, you know, it's not about being a game show host on speed. Senior managers are not meant to be professional communicators in that kind of way. And this is true, employees again, and I'm talking about when I asked them about senior manager communication, they just want them to be themselves. Yes. Just be human, just tell it as it is, be authentic, be truthful, and, you know, explain things. And if you don't know the answer to a question, you know, we accept that you can say you don't know and all this kind of stuff. But if you, if you've raised a point there about middle managers, which, which, okay. I want, which if we've got time, just, I think middle managers is the big untapped area of internal communication. And I do think that, we as an internal comms people should bring middle managers into the process much more. What I mean here is that we should coach, guide them, help them, and their middle management role is to support line managers because there are times when line managers are doing team briefings where they could make good, strong connections between teamwork and bigger corporate objectives. And employees do want to know how their work is linked to bigger objectives. And line managers could make that connection not in a forced way through a cascade team briefing, but through a natural understanding of how work does link. 
And it's the middle manager who's best placed to help the line manager understand some of the corporate stuff and to be able to make those connections. So That's I think... perfect sense. Yeah. Your research also suggests that maybe we just need to think again about some of these very large-scale events and that slightly smaller town hall-style events where people feel as Amy Edmonds would say, you have the psychological safety to raise their hand and ask a question. We need to create those kinds of events where people feel able to make a contribution and make a comment. I mean, I know myself, actually, this is not easy, is it? Because we have 30 people. I have a, a monthly all-hands meeting, any questions at the end, and there's still a tumbleweed moment. <laughs> and we know each other incredibly well, but still there's that People just a bit wary of just putting their head above the parapet. I don't know how we get over that problem. I don't know if you've got any suggestions. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, employees told me when I interviewed them and did focus groups with them that they go to town halls because there is information that they get from those events that they find useful. So it's not that we shouldn't be doing town halls, but we should not try to building a Q&A session with a limited time for that, when employees feel under pressure and also they feel the psychological safety, as you quite rightly put it, is difficult for them. So you either change that event completely, transform it, turn it around, turn it on its head, you know, and just give that space, you know, 10 minutes of presentation time. And then if you've got cabaret tables yes. and so on, so you turn it into a, a discussion at table type of event, or you complement those town halls with sort of smaller, localised, more informal sessions, which employees said they really would prefer for discussion. And again, those senior managers going along to those, no PowerPoints, just being themselves, talking, giving updates and listening and getting involved in a conversation. So I heard a podcast that you appeared on quite recently, I think, about listening. And you mentioned there's an ethical dimension to listening. And that caught my ears at the time. And I just wondered if you could elaborate a little bit on this ethical dimension to listening. Well, I'm glad you asked the question because I think ethics is one of those aspects of internal communication that we haven't really explored in enough depth, both from academic perspectives and also in practice. So it's a thoughty issue. So if I talk about this in class and I ask students to say, what comes into mind if I were to say to you, what's ethical practice? And they will say, usually truthful, accurate, timely communication which makes sense, of course. But that to me is just, you know, it's almost like a, you know, first rung on the ethics ladder, really. Right. You know, it's a given, really, of course. Okay, it's the chips to play the game. Yeah, <laughs> I think so, because, you know, and we do this day in, day out. So, as I said, not many people have really talked about or written about or researched ethics in internal communication. There is a guy in the US called Philip Clampett who has touched on it, not devoted a whole piece of research to it, but he asked two questions. He says, for organisations, there are two ethical questions. Firstly, how do we find healthy ways for employees to express their concerns? And secondly, how should we respond to those concerns? Right. So when he thinks about internal communication and an ethical dimension, the first things he talks about are what I would call employee voice or listening mm. points. But why is that? What makes listening ethical, I think, is a good question. So if we are just sending stuff out... If we are just using a one-way approach, we're talking at employees rather than talking with employees. You know, you could make a case for that being good practice in some ways. However, I think that you have to be able to defend the potential accusation of practice being propaganda still. 
So if all you are doing is telling employees what senior management teams and management teams want you to tell them in certain ways and not giving employees opportunities to ask questions or, you know, go further and have a say, express their concerns or voice really serious points, then I would argue that that is close to being propaganda. Yes. And propaganda would all accept as being unethical, I think. Absolutely. But also, are you not helping organisations make better, more informed ethical decisions? So when I see the rise of something like employee activism, okay, it's a phrase we're using a lot of, but we are actually seeing workforces walk out at the moment because they've said, I'm sorry, you know, I'm not having this in my name. This is not the organisation. I didn't join an organisation with those values to have you do this. So it's quite serious stuff. Had there been real proper listening, interpretation of what I'm hearing, and then that being fed back into the decision-making process, maybe a more ethical decision might have been made, a more on-point, value-based decision might have been made that would have prevented the problem, potentially. There's a wonderful book by a guy called Edgar Sheen, I think that's how you pronounce it, called Humble Inquiry, where he talks a lot about the importance of asking, not telling, or certainly asking first. And again, you can imagine lots of organisations just having made better decisions at the end of the day if they'd have actually thought about asking before they told and jumping to a conclusion, I guess. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm doing some research on this with some guys at IABC UK, so Howard Crace and Mike Pounceford, and we did a survey earlier in the year which suggests that the people we surveyed were comms people. It suggests that organisations pay more attention to what stakeholders think and feel in terms of listening to external stakeholders than they do to employees. Yes. And I think, you know, that just shows you or suggests <laughs> that, you know, listening to employees is still not really fully understood. I'm laughing because it reminds me once, and I'm not going to name the organisation, but this organisation had got itself into a bit of a pickle. But a chairman in the middle of a crisis turning to a very senior PR advisor and saying, will it in the Sunday papers and the PR advisor turning around and saying, Chairman, it will be the Sunday papers. We all took a deep, sharp breath and thought, oh dear. But that was the point. They were much more concerned at that point about external perception than internal. So we live in a time now with activism, with employee activism, where it's about time we took the internal attitude and voice and sentiment really seriously. For sure, Um, yeah. yeah. And I think activism will increase inevitably. Yes. So we touched on it earlier, but this whole issue of measurement. In your book that you edit, the textbook, you talk about measurement being the Achilles heel of internal communications. And I kind of really do understand why you say that, because I'll give you an example. We have clients over the years who are quite keen to win awards, for their work, rightly so, and that's something that they should hold us to account for to help them win those awards. But then the thorny issue of measurement comes up, and I make the point that you will not win an award unless you can prove the value of what you've delivered and that you had clear objectives and you met those objectives and that requires some form of measurement. 
Why is it, do you think, that we struggle so much with measuring internal communication? I think it's because we're not numbers people. Right, it's that simple, Katie. <laughs> well, um, I mean, maybe I'm you know, uh, making a sweeping generalisation, but I mean, I think the truth is that people who work in internal communication tend to prefer to work with words and pictures than numbers. Mm. This, that's what I find from the students in my classes. And, you know, and I'm the same. You know, I did languages and I did psychology as a degree. And, you know, so I was forced to do it for my PhD thesis. You know, I, I now can do multiple regression analysis. Wow. Get me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I promise you, I am not someone who has a natural affinity of working with data and, and statistics. I'm also guessing that we scare ourselves with it because we think, oh my goodness me, is that correlation or is it causation? <laughs> and I mustn't get those two things confused. If I'm allowed to have a bit of a plug here, Katie, yeah, sure. then I've come up with what I've called the ICQ-10, which is 10 fundamental questions that you should be asking about internal communication and engagement in your organisation. It's a complete free to download guide. So just go to prplace.com, search for ICQ10 and you'll find it there. It's meant to be a simple, basic overview of the sorts of things you should be measuring. Now, there's no point in internal communications people thinking they've got to become experts in correlation analysis. That'd be silly, you know. But so it's just getting to grips with basic survey tools and understanding the difference between an output and an outcome. Both valuable. So yes. you know, an output is numbers of likes, tweets, clicks, views. Output data is useful because you can compare views of one video with views of another video and you can start to work out which content is obviously being watched more often. So output measurement is good. But outcome measurement is better because it starts to get you to the point where you can see whether or not employees are understanding and whether it's changing employee attitudes and behaviour. Yes. And that becomes a little bit more difficult to do. But if you start with sort of basic survey design and start with understanding the difference between outputs and outcomes, that's really as far as you need to go. It's not that difficult, actually. No. Trust me, I'm a doctor. <laughs> It can be done. If I can do it, anyone can do it, I promise. Am I right in thinking on your website, there is a webinar that explains the Q10 as well? There is, yes. So, and I found that really, really useful. Okay. So I think that would be a great place for people to start. Ultimately, over time, I'm hoping, and I even blogged about this today, I think that hopefully our platforms and our channels will start to give us that instant live dashboard that certainly the external channels give us. I mean, I'm just amazed by the data. I said to the team the other day with MailChimp, for example, oh dear, it's not telling me which ones are left-handed and glucose intolerant that read this on a Tuesday afternoon, but it was giving me so much information. And unfortunately, and I know listeners will feel the same way, there are still some intranets and other particularly digital channels out there where the data just is really hard to get hold of. It's impenetrable, it's gappy. It's just not giving us the intel I guess, that we need? I think that's the important other dimension to this, is being able to make sense of data that is generated through, mm. you know, whatever platforms or tools mm. are you using. So it's mm. been the ability to analyse data mm. is a separate issue and challenge. And I think we've got to start to get our heads around this stuff because yes. when we do, the insights that come out of some of the data that we have access to are really, you know, gold nuggets. They help yes. us to really focus on stuff that's going to make a real difference yes. rather than just guess about what might or might not be the right thing to do. 
You know, so that's where I think we have to combine a knowledge about statistics and data and numbers with an understanding of how to analyse the data that comes out of it. Was there a particular reason, I'm just curious to ask this question, why you went from a fairly, well, very traditional organisation going through change and doing the doing, as it were, to then academia, which is very, very different. Was there a sort of light bulb moment when you thought, hang on a minute, no, there's just something over here that I've just got to explore? Or did that side of your work inside a corporate naturally come to an end and you just wanted to focus on something new? Well, I'll let you into a bit of a secret, Casey. I've been a sort of study junkie since I was 35, you know. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, I dropped out of university and I picked up my studies later on and I did a degree all through the Open University. I had a great institute, did my degree in psychology. Then I did my master's, my MBA. And so I was studying part-time for a long, long time and I just became a study. I love studying. And so I got to the point where I think, well, what will I do next? <laughs> and that led me down the path of doing a PhD, but it also led me into teaching. Right. So I left BT in the early 2000s and I trained to become a teacher. I did a postgraduate certificate in education, so I became a qualified teacher and I taught in further education colleges, right. business studies. So I ended up doing a bit of both. For a while I was doing some teaching and some consulting, right. working in internal comms, and then I just naturally moved more into the teaching. And then we formed PR Academy and then I started to see that my background and experience in internal communication didn't lead me into many opportunities to teach internal communication because, you know, there weren't many courses. And, no. You know, so that led to me establishing the qualifications, internal comms for CIPR. And that's really where I focused much more of my attention ever since. So I didn't plan my career. I just kind of, you know, found myself stumbling into various different yes. you know, opportunities. So I'm going to turn now to those quick fire questions, if I may, courtesy of Tim Ferriss. What would most surprise people about Kevin Ruck? <laughs> I used to be quite a fast runner. Ah, very fast? Or? Well, <laughs> <laughs> how fast is How fast? fast? You want to know how fast. Okay. <laughs> what was your distance? Was I your... ran 100 metres, 200 metres and 400 metres. Okay, that was, the fast races. Yeah, 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 the, the sort yeah. of sprints. Yeah. At a competitive level? Yeah, I ran at sort of county level, I suppose. Yeah, oh, okay. better way, yeah. Do you still run now? Or? <laughs> <laughs> I take that as a no. <laughs> Very slowly. <laughs> What's the best piece of careers advice you've ever been given? My PE teacher advised me not to become a PE teacher. I remember him now. Pedro Jackson, his name was. Well, Pedro is what we called him at school. He had a little Mexican moustache. But I remember Mr Jackson vividly. And I sat down by the swimming pool. I remember and I sat down, look, I'm really thinking about applying to go to Loughborough University to do the PE teacher qualification. And he said, Kevin, if you want to enjoy your sport throughout the rest of your life, ah. I would advise you to go do something else and then do your sport as something that you enjoy as an activity separate from teaching. So, you know, he's very honest. What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you couldn't fail. For certain, yeah? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We take failure off the table to make it one of those things where you can dream big. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I take on Usain Bolt over 400 metres. <laughs> I said it's a theme coming through in these, Kevin, for sure. <laughs> he's not known for running 400s, though. So oh, this is why I'm giving myself a bit of a chance. I see. I, mean, I don't think he's really ever run a competitive 400. 
Okay. It still makes the headlines. <laughs> <laughs> when you think of the world's best communicator, alive or dead, who comes to mind? I'm actually going to avoid some of the perhaps more obvious people, such as Winston Churchill, who was a great orator, of course. And I'm going for a, what might be considered to be a left-field choice here. Good. It's actually the American psychologist, people might not have heard of him, a guy called Carl Rogers. And he really, in counselling and psychology fields, established the importance of listening to people without judging. Oh. And I think that goes back to some of the things we've been talking about today. You know, communication is not about speaking or about being a great orator or a great speaker necessarily. It's about listening as well. So I wanted to get one in for the listening like side it. of communication. I like it. Yeah, it's some fantastic work on counselling. I think it's fed a lot into the coaching profession. And finally, what would you have written on a billboard for everyone to see? So you can write on this billboard, but everyone, it's metaphorical really to say you can get one message out to millions. What would it be? I stole this. <laughs> <laughs> I've stolen this from Hugo Lloris, who some people won't know, who is the Spurs captain. And he famously said, a good leader is not someone who talks the most, it's the person who talks the most sense. And he resonates with me. I'm an introvert, so I'm not the most talkative person naturally. So, you know, perhaps applies to some people in politics at the moment, perhaps we could even say, you know. Yes. Uh, and with the social media world that we live in, you know, there's a lot of noise created. Right. So I think, you know, it's not the person who creates the most noise or talks the most that isn't necessarily a good leader. This kind of represents me, really. I kind of, I place a big emphasis on research, evidence-based thinking that feeds into our professional practice. It's the idea also that less is more as well, yes. isn't it, in a way? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I hadn't yeah. thought of that yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, thank you so much for appearing on the Internal Comms podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. So that's a wrap for episode one of season two of the Internal Comms podcast. For all the books and other resources that Kevin and I talked about, pop over to the podcast section of AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk. And while you're there, you might like to sign up for our monthly newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. It'll give you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of comms. Congratulations to the listener from the Learning and Work Institute who won a free AB acid test audit at the end of last season by completing our end of show questionnaire. But it's not too late to share your own views on the show. Perhaps you'd like to blog about this episode, share your thoughts on social media or just get in touch with me directly. All my details are on AB's website. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us make this podcast more discoverable for other internal communicators and leaders out there. Now, I'm told the very best way of doing this is to simply rate the show on iTunes or subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Thank you to everyone who is continuing to support the show. You make it all possible. So listeners, until we meet again, remember, it's what's inside that counts.